Welcome to Leading Views. Today's guest is Una Mulally, European young leader, journalist, activist, and editor of Repeal the Eighth, an anthology of writing about reproductive rights in Ireland. Um, Una, thank you so much for joining me today. Delighted to be here. <laughs> Thanks. Across the Atlantic, on the other side of the Atlantic, we've lately been seeing a significant number of states passing strict abortion legislation, um, taking away women's rights to choose and having autonomy over their own bodies. In Ireland, on the other hand, uh, Ireland recently went the other way, repealing its ban on abortion. And you played a significant role in that, if I understand correctly. Could you talk to me a little bit about that? Well, I suppose um, as a journalist and a columnist with uh, the Irish Times and and, uh, contributing columnist to The Guardian, you have this platform to express um, your points of view and inevitably you know, your worldview and activism and stuff happening on the ground plays into that. So, yeah, in the, in the media, I guess it would have been quite quite vocal with regards to the movement for reproductive rights, which in Ireland was, you know, so long. Um, and in particular was this 35-year span since uh, the Eighth Amendment, which is our constitutional ban on abortion, was introduced via a referendum in 1983. And that referendum was the result of very, you know, concerted lobbying by more kind of right wing fundamentalist aspects of the Catholic Church to political leaders um, to hold that referendum. And it's interesting when you talk about the states, because, the, you know, one of the reasons that that um, constitutional ban came into effect um, and the referendum was pitched as a thing was because of these concerns in, in Ireland um, looking to the U.S., with regards to Roe v. Wade and the ongoing conversations around abortion access there, and also this concern um, that the Catholic Church had here that things around birth control and, and uh, family planning and right to privacy within married couples could be used to legalise abortion, as had happened in the UK in the 60s. And so that constitutional ban was put into effect and thus followed a 35-year campaign to remove it, which obviously um, dipped and uh, at certain points and was very visceral at other points. But I suppose in, in recent years, particularly um, from you know, 2014, 2015, the campaign was at, at full tilt here. And yes, you know, Ireland is in an interesting position in that we are implementing policies and social change that are viewed as progressive. But I think it's also important to remember that it took us a long time to get there as well. So decriminalizing, legalizing, providing for free, safe and legal abortion via referendum in 2018 is a, an amazing feat for a country that resisted that for so long. But in a global context, it's, you know, so delayed and it's kind of incredible, you know, a year on after that to... um to reflect on it in that way. And, you know, something else that, as you mentioned in in the intro there, uh, the anthology that I edited, which was, you know, literature and art and design that was inspired by and emerged from that movement stands now, you know, a year later as this weird historical artifact of um, a campaign that was very creative and that was very emotional. So there's a lot of reflection happening here. And, you know, in Ireland, we're certainly in dialogue with our American um, sisters in particular, with regards to what they're facing there. I was in New York recently um, at this kind of really interesting conference organized by um, CUNY, CUNY, New York, um, around this dialogue between Ireland and America that's now happening. And it is incredible 
that we are now in a position where people in the US are looking to Ireland to kind of imagine how movements can be constructed, how grassroots stuff can happen. Obviously, there's amazing work being done in the US as well. But the chipping away at reproductive rights that's happening in the US is terrifying. It is strategic. And it just is really incredible how those things can flip. You know, that little 180 can happen. You know, Irish people have, like, you know, loads of different countries and different people have looked to, um, you know, American feminists. And Roe v. Wade is this thing that has been a bastion of um, integrity, I suppose, in preserving women's autonomy and agency. But when you look at what's happening now, you know, there is no point in many ways for a federally protected right to privacy, right to abortion, if there is no access. And um, it's the access piece that is really strategically being chipped away at in the US, as I'm sure you know, and seeing states, you know, with one uh, clinic left and that clinic closing and seeing what's happening with these so-called uh, heartbeat bills in Alabama, uh, Georgia, stuff that's happening in Kentucky and Missouri. Um, these are really dire times. And uh, the learning that was kind of, I suppose, from the US to Ireland for so long, now being Ireland to the US, has been eye-opening. And it also goes to show that while the Irish movement was so long, how quickly it can turn around somewhere else. I'm terrified by what's happening in the US. So I'm, I'm happy to see that there is a dialogue happening with Ireland. Because what's interesting to me is that if it took 35 years, what changed? Why did suddenly after 35 years, did you get enough momentum, enough, I guess, political support to to have hold a re referendum and, and, and reverse the ban in Ireland? I think loads of things happened. Um, like, like anything, it's always a confluence of things. It's never one thing. So I suppose there was this very grim context over years about how these um, these laws just simply weren't working. And there were a lot of hard cases that emerged. You know, there's this kind of philosophy that, you know, hard cases make bad law, but, you know, bad law also makes these hard cases. And so, you know, things that were happening with regards to... Um, very, you know, traumas, essentially. And in particular, the death of a woman called Savita Halapanaver, who died in the west of Ireland in October 2012, a month after a, a new kind of movement was, was building called March for Choice, which was organised by the abortion rights campaign. And those marches continued up until the referendum. And um, she died uh, when she was having a, a miscarriage in a hospital in the west of Ireland. And she repeatedly asked for an abortion and that was not provided for, including a medical professional telling her that this was a Catholic country. She was uh, from India originally, but was living in, in Galway. And she then died of a septic miscarriage. And this death was so unacceptable um, to Irish people. It caused spontaneous protests um, in the capital city, Dublin, and also in Galway and you know towns all around the country. That really was the point where people just started to say, you know, we just cannot keep doing this. We cannot keep allowing women to suffer in this way. And Ireland is kind of unusual with regards to the constraints that were put around abortion in that, you know, right next door to us is England and where abortion is legal. So you have the situation where for politically, because abortion was really the third rail of Irish politics for so long, 
politicians were kind of happy for this issue to be exported. So you had 10 to 12 Irish women traveling every day to access abortion at great expense. Of course, the people who couldn't uh, do that are always the people who are the most marginalized, the most vulnerable women who did not have the financial means to do it, some migrant women, asylum seekers, that kind of thing. So the death of Savita Halepanavar very tragically did light this new spark in the movement. That was compounded by other, you know, hard cases that were that were also coming to light. And also um, the marriage equality movement. So we had a referendum on marriage equality in 2015 and Ireland became the first country in the world to pass marriage equality um, for same-sex couples by popular vote. And the activism that happened around that um, really galvanized a generation who were really engaging politically for the first time. This was something that you know people thought was impossible in Ireland um, at the time, yet you know, thousands and thousands of people went canvassing, joined groups, you know, were going to door to door every evening, um, gave giving up loads of their time, and this created a movement that gave an awful lot of energy to the possibility that if we could have marriage equality, then we could repeal the eighth and we could get free safe legal abortion. And, you know, there is such proximity between those two referenda, 2015 and 2018. And, you know, hugely, you know, what played a role in um, the movement here was women breaking silence and um, talking about their abortions en masse for the first time. Of course, women had, had spoken before, you know, um, very seldomly, I might add, um, in the public eye. But this time, women were just basically coming out and saying, you know, this happened to me, this was my circumstance, whether it was difficult or very normal, um, the shame and the stress that they had suffered by being forced out of the country to travel for medical care. And that those personal stories really rooted a movement in empathy and in very honest conversations that also was kind of on the back in many ways of the marriage equality movement where queer people were very much opening up their private lives and talking about their love for their partners and really being very vulnerable and so those things kind of created this you know very open moment of empathy in the country that allowed for these things to happen. Now, there was an awful, incredible amount of protest as well, an incredible amount of grassroots activism, mostly led by young women. This was a grassroots feminist campaign built around protest and, and um, activism and activations. And, you know, that has to be also seen in the global context of where we're at with young feminist movements as well. And needless to say, it was also intergenerational, but that energy that young women were giving this movement were just saying, you know, our mothers put up with this, our grandmothers put up with this, and we're not going to put up with it. You mentioned the marriage equality referendum, and, and that was going to be my next question. Um, you've been a strong advocate for, for equal rights uh, for the LGBTQ plus community. As you mentioned, people were kind of surprised that Ireland was the first country in the world to pass marriage equality. How did you manage it? And in terms of, uh, let's step outside of Ireland for a second, where does Europe stand these days on LGBTQ plus rights? Well, I think that, I mean, we were the first country to pass by popular vote, right? So it was, it was kind of a unique situation um, elsewhere. The marriage equality movement viewed globally mostly goes through either the legislature, through parliamentary debates or through the courts, as it did in the US. Um, and I suppose 
our our marriage equality movement probably looked more to the US than it did to um, other countries in Europe in some ways, you know, because we were building a movement from um, nothing. You know, the first step was really convincing the LGBT community itself that the equality part of the marriage equality movement was something that we should be be striving for and also taking into consideration, you know, the concerns that people have around you know, should we be going for marriage at all? Is this an institution that is about, you know, treats for certain people and, and not for others? And yeah, I suppose Ireland in a weird way in terms of the movement aspect of that led in some ways, I feel, in a European context. We'd seen very fractured protests and increases in homophobic attacks in France, for example. There was also the, the you know, the infamous line, David Cameron, that he was voting for marriage equality, not despite being a conservative, but because he was a conservative. So there are concerns around the the the, the politics of marriage. Um, and also, you know, when you're looking at um, the crackdown on, on pride in places like Riga and places like Warsaw and things like that. So I suppose Ireland was, was very rooted again in kind of opening up um, these conversations amongst ourselves. We are an emigrating nation we are also kind of a self-obsessed nation and very much trying to imagine what kind of people we are what kind of state we are and the interesting thing I suppose about the marriage equality thing is that it the referendum was in 2015 the movement was building for years and years and years primarily beginning with a case that um, a lesbian couple Catherine Zapone and Anne-Louise Gilligan took against the state to have their Canadian marriage recognised and that kind of birthed a protest movement and an organisational movement and a political lobbying movement. But at that time as well, when we look at the referendums in 2015, Ireland was about to celebrate its centenary of the Easter Rising of 1916 in 2016. And there are a lot of soul-searching conversations around what kind of republic do we want to be? Would the, you know, the assassinated and executed leaders of the Rising um be proud of where we are right now. We had emerged from a colossal economic crisis as the rest of the world had, but Ireland was p- particularly, you know, badly hit with that. And we, you know, had the Troika and the IMF and the European Central Bank and so on coming in to, to our country and reorganising our finances. This was a massive moment of, you know, humiliation and um, recession. So I think coming out of that, there was this period of self-reflection and I guess as well in a European context, Ireland is a small country. It is it's much easier to kind of reach people. It's much easier to have those conversations. You can, in theory, canvas all across the country. People can be reached. We don't have the same disparities and distances between cities, towns, villages as other European nations do. So all of those things kind of fed into the fact that perhaps these are things we should be aspiring to. And yeah, I mean, I do think that it's difficult to reflect on this period in Ireland right now, although we're getting some distance from it now, but these are not individual moments. You know, this is a is, this is a broader period of social change that we're seeing in Ireland. Also in 2015, we um, brought in the Gender Recognition Act, which is some of the most um, progressive and, and really forward thinking and very, very decent and good trans rights legislation. So all of these things are kind of happening at the same time. Um, so this social change piece um, has been quite successful. Now, you know, you can look at the other much more difficult pieces that we're in some ways 
that we're experiencing in Ireland in terms of neoliberal government, in terms of our housing crisis and, and homelessness crisis. It's kind of difficult to parse those kind of things when you're looking at social change and how a country can actually change policies. You know, ultimately, there wasn't any economic opposition to marriage equality or reproductive rights. The economic things are much harder in some ways to unpick. So that's, I think, a, a lot of the discourse is happening around Ireland right now about that. It's like, well, how do we fix our housing crisis? How do we make housing a right? How do we um, dismantle our very, very uh, punitive and unfair systems for asylum seekers in our system called direct provision, for example? So, you know, it's very difficult to do everything at the same time. But I think we are in a in a quite an interesting scenario in that we are emerging from recession and austerity policies with these kind of progressive politics. Now, what's interesting to me when when you were talking about both the cases of, of marriage equality and reproductive rights, um, people connecting with people, um, specific stories that triggered movements, it seems like nowadays and perhaps maybe going back a few years, citizen engagement across Europe, you know, we're, we're seeing notably with Greta Thunberg and her climate strike seems to be what's really been mobilizing change. Is this the way to force change in Europe with citizen engagement and mobilization sort of forcing politicians to listen? Is that sort of the new the new way that, that things need to be done to get things done in Europe? I think so. You know, I think that in Ireland it was very clear that the politicians followed the people. Um, we didn't have um, very progressive political leadership at all. You know, um, politicians were scared and they were wrongly scared. They considered the population to be more cautious and conservative than it was. And what we've seen is that that is simply not the case at all. And I think, you know, that point is is really, really valid. That citizen engagement and citizen education and civic education is really important. Because what we also had preceding these two referenda were citizen assembly and constitutional convention processes where 100 citizens, in one case, 100 citizens and politicians, in the second case, 100 citizens were chosen and over a period of months debated and heard discussions on these issues in, in quite a calm process. And that allowed a debate to happen in a framework that was not outrageous or hysterical or divisive. Now, the campaigns were quite divisive the referendum campaigns themselves, but you have to have that citizen engagement piece and that education piece, because as we've seen with Brexit, you know, in the aftermath, people talking about that they didn't know what they were voting for and that there wasn't enough information and there were no plans. Um, and we see the the absolute mess that the UK is in in the moment with that. So you really do have to have this multifaceted thing. And it is easier, I suppose, to do in small countries because there's less disparity between communities and even geographically, there's less disparity between things. But citizen engagement is huge. But I mean, citizen engagement and mobilisation can also go the other way with regards to right wing policies or fascistic movements. You know, that is also engagement. You know, for, for me, um, this rooting things in changing hearts and minds and coming from a perspective of empathy and having really open conversations, you know, nobody should ask people or demand of people to share their private lives. It is a sacrifice that people have to make often for uh, that empathy to roll in and for people who never really may have cared about, 
you know, marriage equality, for example, to think, no, I want to, I want to give something to my fellow citizen and I want for us to be equal in a republic. Yeah, I mean, I, I really think that citizen education is as important as mobilization. How do you go about doing that? I mean, you mentioned it's easier in smaller countries, but how do you actually get people to attend? How do you motivate them to come and get educated about issues that they might not think are relevant to them or that they might not care about? I think you have to develop democratic structures outside of parliamentary or party system that aren't about party politics or that aren't about taking sides. And I think developing these kind of structures like constitutional conventions, like citizens' assemblies, are really key to that because the media is kind of obliged to report on those and therefore it creates a debate within a framework that is kind of contained and then you have to go about the grassroots activism of it and educating people. There were so many uh, grassroots campaigns around the abortion referendum. One amazing online campaign was called In Her Shoes about women sharing their abortion stories. There were so much stuff around design. A young woman called Anna Cosgrave made these black sweaters that had repeal written on them in white. And these were essentially political billboards that lasted for a year and a half, two years before the referendum even happened, that people would be wearing them and starting conversations. So there has to be a modicum of respect because, as we know, referenda are, are quite blunt instruments. They're, they're not ideal because people just want to win. And oftentimes in those binary uh, political journeys, you know, misinformation can come to the fore because people will do whatever they want to say, whatever they want to win. So the education and those democratic structures in order to do it and those structures that really engage citizens and media together have to roll in beforehand because by the time you get to a referendum, it can kind of be too late because people are throwing everything on the table as we saw with Brexit. I like to end my interviews with a more personal question. So who has inspired you? I'm inspired by ordinary people who do extraordinary things. It's a lot to ask people to stand up for their rights when oftentimes they might be comfortable or things don't necessarily affect them directly. So when people look around their communities and see others who are marginalized and reach out to those people and help those people, that sentiment of solidarity has always inspired me. Um, as a journalist, as a human, um, as a queer person, as a woman, seeing people stand up who aren't directly or maybe even indirectly impacted by inequalities is the most important thing that we can do. And with privilege, we are obligated to stand up um, for people who you know, may not look like us, may not have our experiences you fight for one thing and you get it and then you have to look at what's around you and, and look at the next step on the ladder and, and put out your hand. You know, I am a, a white middle class woman living in Western Europe. I'm obligated to make things better for those around me who do not have that privilege, uh, who do not have the privilege of my precarious economic but stable in some ways circumstances, who do not have the privilege of my ethnicity or education um, who do not have the privilege of, of housing, which I'm lucky to have. You know, these are very, very basic things that are also exceptional globally. And the impetus to do that is what in inspires me always. The leadership thing is interesting because in some ways, you know, I, I don't see leadership as individual. I see it as a collective. Individuals can make a lot of noise, but it's the collective that gets things done. So I'm inspired by that collective spirit and I think that Ireland uh, can lead collectively around the world and in Europe 
in those progressive policies. But we have to make things better in our own back garden before we start to criticize about how other people are doing things. Well, I absolutely couldn't have said it better. <laughs> I hope I, 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 I leave this interview very hopeful. Thank you for listening to Friends of Europe's Leading Views podcast. Tell us what you think. We'd love to hear from you. Leave a comment, a like, or a rating for us. Have a lovely day. Bye.